Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. You just jumped in the Houston Sports Talk time machine for Throwback Thursday. And over the years, I've been fortunate enough to sit down with Astros broadcasters Bill Brown, Julia Morales, Greg Lucas, Jerry Truppiano, and longtime PA announcer Bob Ford. In this special, we revisit some of the best pieces of those conversations, including memories of legendary Astros voices Gene Elston and Milo Hamilton. I got to warn you that yours truly and my old co-host, RGCL, it might sound a little bit nervous when we talked to Bill Brown. It was our early years of the show. Didn't really know Brownie all that well back then. So, yeah, maybe there's some nerves. But uh, great conversation. We got into Brownie's early days in broadcasting and how he made his way to Houston. Before all that, he explains how he got President George H.W. Bush to write the foreword to one of his books. Our conversation was a couple of years before the president's recent passing, just to put it in a little perspective. Well, without further ado, let's hop in the time machine. I remember my dad was a big fan of Harry Truman, and he had met Harry Truman once. You know, that was long, long ago. And now uh, to have this opportunity to have President Bush write this forward is really something that was beyond belief for me. In the beginning, it was just an idea. We we had the book finished except for the forward and realized, you know, gee, it would be nice to have somebody with some real scope and, and national notoriety. And, you know, you begin to think about people in baseball and then you get a little greedy and expand your horizons a little beyond baseball and think, well, gee, if we could just get so-and-so and so-and-so. And, of course, I thought of him because uh, he and his wife have been such a presence at so many big Astros games down through the years. And I thought, no, that's never going to happen. But I happened to know Kurt Smith, who was his speechwriter. And Kurt, as you know, Robert, has written many books on uh, baseball broadcasting. He wrote the the be-all and end-all book uh, about the history of baseball broadcasting. Very, very thick volume, but definitely worthwhile for anybody who's into that sort of thing. Yeah, Voices and of so the Game, he, yeah. Yeah, Voices of the Game, that's right. And he is uh, considered to be the authority on on baseball broadcasters down through history. So I thought, well, gee, I do know Kurt Smith, and uh, I'm going to start by calling him and seeing if he thinks this could be possible. And he referred me to the people at the uh, Bush Library, folks who run that, and then they referred me to um, uh, some people here in Houston who deal with President Bush's uh, publicity, and, and you know, before I knew it, it took, it took a while, but the book was still in production, so I really wasn't sure it was going to happen, and then this was last winter, and he was in bad health, and I was just sitting there thinking, oh, oh no, oh, no, this is really worrisome, but uh, Fortunately, everything happened uh, for the best, and, and the forward's great, and uh, it's just a great way to begin the book, I think. When your first book, My Baseball Journey, uh, Broadcaster's Memoir, you talk about your inspiration to become a sports broadcaster. And if I remember correctly, it was the big money you earned working at a bowling alley, which allowed you to buy a tape recorder, right? Take us through that story, if you will. <laughs> well, that was really my first job, and the bowling alley was within walking distance of my home, and I think I only got the job because my father knew the owner of the bowling alley and used to hang out there after work sometimes in the lounge. So I was hired to be kind of a pin setter, you know, behind-the-scenes kind of guy, and I was supposed to really know how to fix <laughs> the machines, and I had no clue. Um, it was a really sound uh, 
engineer in the back of the bowling alley who was trying to teach me how to do things. At one point, I got up on top of the pin center, and he used to do that. He used to stand up on top of it. You know, that's where the pins are inserted, and then the whole rack drops down, and the pins are left, and the person bowls at those pins. But I, I slipped, uh, and uh, my leg uh, slipped down into wh where one of those pins should go. So um, <laughs> that was my first real disaster, and there were many more to come. And, and soon they lost all confidence in me, and I was assigned to do nothing of any importance whatsoever. Well, you grew up listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck doing the Cardinals broadcast, and you had Merle Harmon and Monty Moore over in Kansas City with the Kansas City A's. Which, which broadcaster, too, do you think had the most influence on your style and kind of your passion for the art form? Well, I thought a lot of Jack Buck and uh, most of my buddies growing up, and you're talking about age probably, you know, 12 through 18, right in that impressionable age time of life. Uh, most of my buddies liked Harry. Harry was the showman. He created drama. He was very emotional. Jack Buck was more of a reporter, more dispassionate, uh, known for his accuracy. Harry was not always known for his accuracy. I went to a game one time in St. Louis, and I had my transistor with me, and his description of a ground ball, which was a routine ground ball to third, was something like this. There's a hot smash to Kenny Boyer. He comes up with it. He throws to first. He gets him. I saw it as a two-hopper. He didn't have to move at all. It was a <laughs> ball that went right into his glove, and I thought that was over-dramatizing a little bit. So Harry was not really big with me in terms of um, the kind of a broadcaster I wanted to shoot for. Now, Granted, he is in the Hall of Fame, and I get to pay to go in the Hall of Fame, so that might tell you something. But nonetheless, I really like Jack Buck and his style. He was very unassuming. He could get up for the big moments, as you've seen down through the years of his career and uh, World Series games and things of that nature, Monday Night Football and radio. I thought he was terrific at that. So Jack was always the guy for me. I did like the guys in Kansas City as well, but, but Jack was, uh, was the model. Uh, he was uh, the target to shoot for. Well, from Sedalia, you found your way to the most prestigious and best journalism school in the country, the University of Missouri J School. I have to throw it in there, of course, because I'm a member of the Mizzou Mafia as well. At Missouri, <laughs> you got uh, on-air experience working at the NBC affiliate during the local news breaks for the Today Show. But what about your first paid sports play-by-play -play job? What, what do you remember about it? How did it come about? What I remember, Robert, is that um, during the summer when I was going to Mizzou, I went back to my hometown in Sedalia, which was about 70 miles away, and I got a job at KDRO Radio, which was a 1,000-watt station that served uh, just you know a couple of counties in that area. And I, I just badgered and begged this sports director who was owner of about one-third of the station to hang around him and try to go on the air if he needed somebody. And, and finally, he let me help him out with some high school football and I was in the beginning a spotter, and then he would uh, let me do a little bit of color now and then, I'd do a little bit of color commentary. And I remember my first paycheck, it was handwritten by the general manager of the station for working a high school football game on a Friday night, was $5. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that long silence was the, you know... The speechlessness of somebody maybe a little bit younger than you are. <laughs> <laughs> Those were different times, I grant you. <laughs> but, you know, it could have, I could have paid them $5, and I would have been just as pleased. You'll take what you can get when you're starting off. Well, you were, the, you were the Reds broadcaster, and then you were a producer, programmer, and director for a few sports cable networks, including HSC and Pittsburgh, I think. How did you end up with the Astros? Well, I ended up with the Astros because I was with, uh, it was a crazy story, but I was with the Financial News Network in Los Angeles 
which morphed into CNBC. And at the time, uh, they were on uh, all during the business hours doing financial news. But at night, they had nothing but uh, paid programming, you know, pay, uh, sales type uh, presentations for different products. And and they wanted uh, a live presence at night as well. And they felt if they could do a sports talk show, that would allow them to sell to approximately the same heavily male-dominated audience that their daytime uh, stock market programming catered to. And so that was what they did. They started that show when uh, Sports Time Cable Network collapsed in Cincinnati. There were about five or six of us on-air people who were under contract for one more year. And they found an assignability clause in our contracts. And they came to us and said, well, you have two choices. You can either uh, work out the remaining year of your contract, uh, moving from Cincinnati to Los Angeles. We'll give you a slight pay adjustment. Or you can take three months severance pay. Well, that wasn't much of a choice. We all chose to move, even, even though none of us really liked the prospects of the job. But there we were doing this nationwide sports talk show on cable uh, for four hours a night with a very small staff, very little money in the budget. But it was something that worked. We actually must have drawn the attention of ESPN because we had this ticker running across the bottom of the screen, constantly updating scores. And they had never done that until a few months after our network started doing it. So it did get a rise out of them and, and eventually served the viewers of ESPN better. Well, after a couple of years there, I realized uh, with, with the low budgets and uh, our programming probably was about as good as it was ever going to be. And I had pretty much given up on the idea of getting another baseball play-by-play -play job. But Dick Wagner was the general manager of the Astros, and they were in town to play the Dodgers. And I had called ahead to see if he was making the trip, and indeed he was. And he agreed to be on a show with me, which which was uh, this cable talk show. And we did, I, I think it was either half an hour or an hour show. And I gave him a ride back to his hotel in downtown L.A. And he and I had been in Cincinnati together. He was general manager of the Reds when I was doing the games. And he asked me, well, do you ever want to get back into baseball? I said, well, I'd love to, but I just quit applying for jobs because they're, they're just not seemingly attainable right now. And he said, okay. And, and uh, then in November of that year, I got a call from him saying, well, I remember you said you wanted to get back into baseball. Are you serious about it? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, we have an opening right now. And that was right after they fired Gene Elston. And uh, he said, if you're interested in, in applying, our broadcasting director is Art Elliott. You should get in touch with him, and it's up to you from there. And, you know, that's that's how I wound up getting the job, which was, uh, again, beyond my wildest dreams. And, boy, has it worked out well. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's It's been a, a great marriage with you and the Astros. I, I know RG's got a couple of questions for you, RG. Just wanted to ask, over the years, you've seen a lot of changes in the Astros broadcast booth. This past year, we enjoyed the return of Alan Ashby to the airways. But we also missed having Jim Deshays, who moved to the Cubs broadcasting team, with whom you formed a great pairing. Could you explain about partnerships and chemistry in the broadcast booth and what, in your mind, makes a strong announcing team? That is a really good question, RG. It's um, something that uh, a lot of viewers probably don't spend too much time thinking about, but they know when they're watching it. You know, they know when uh, there's a good broadcast team on the air, whether it's Joe Buck and Tim McCarver or whoever your individual favorite might be. Uh, it, it just, you know, and I was talking earlier about uh, Jack Buck doing Monday Night Football on radio, and he worked with Hank Stram. They were so very good together. Boy, they just, it was just a fit. And it's really hard to explain, but when Jim and I 
started working together in 97. Uh, Jim hadn't really had any experience in the broadcast booth at all. Astros management thought he would be good. I thought he would be good. We knew he had a sense of humor. We knew he enjoyed being around the game and, and explaining game and was a great interview. And that's how a lot of players do get these opportunities. They were great interviews. Um, and when we started, I, I don't think he had the sense of humor that he later cultivated. That's to be understood because it takes a, a loose type of character, a loose type of approach to come out with the kind of humor he has. But once he got more comfortable and once I understood that, that he could really take advantage of the amount of time he had, I realized I need to shut up and, and give him more time. But he always had that ability, whether it was 20 seconds or a minute and 20 seconds, to entertain. And uh, I kept getting feedback from people. Boy, this guy is really funny. And, you know, he doesn't rely on cliches like the other guys, but he still makes his points. He doesn't belabor them, but he'll make an analogy to something in another sport or even in another walk of life that, that hadn't occurred to people. So he really had that different character, that different quality about him. And he's just one of the best around. So I enjoyed hearing the feedback from people who watched. And that was a message to me to use this guy. You know, he's he is your biggest asset. Use him. Let him have the time on the air. Well, there have been so many great moments that you've seen over the years and you're 27 years now uh, with the Astros. Give us a couple, if you don't mind, that have extra special meaning to you. I, I know the Craig Biggio one's got to be up near the top as 3,000th hit since I think you would have seen all 3,000 of his hits, which has got to be very unusual. Well, it was. It was, you know, one of those moments that's anticipated for so long in advance. And, and any time there's that kind of a buildup, it does become even more special when it happens. And just the way it happened was was magical, um, you know, going into that game, he needed three. And I thought, well, the odds are not really good. He's going to get three in this game, and he got five. So it uh, shows you how little I know about this, which is what brings us all back to the ballpark so many times, what we don't know and how fascinated we are by how things play out, not the way we think they'll play out. That game certainly has to rank uh, very high. And, you know, people talk about the 05 World Series, which was terrific. Uh, the 05 series was kind of a downer for me because I wasn't working the game. So uh, we were sitting in the stands, my wife and I, watching as fans, and, and that was a little bit different aspect for me to be able to interact with people that way. But uh, but I was not uh, not a happy camper because, uh, you know, when you do games all year long and you have a, a great team like that and you're not doing the job you were doing all regular season – it's just not uh, not a great time. It's it's more of a downer than anything else, and that's that's personal. I, I don't think anybody cares about that, but me. But that's you know you ask um, about big moments. Well, since I wasn't really a part of it in terms of working, it wasn't uh, probably as big for me as as it was for a lot of other people. I like the final game of the '99 regular season when the Astros needed a win to make the playoffs, and it was the last regular season game in the dome and. They brought all the um, the great players from Astros history who could be there back. And, boy, if they had lost that game and lost a playoff berth, what an awful time that would have been. But they won it, and, the, you know, the, uh, all the players who had been around for years, the Bob Aspermontes of the world, were, were there celebrating with them on the field. There was confetti coming down from the ceiling at the Dome, and it was a great way 
for that final game to wind up. So that was really one of my top times. Great stuff from Astros voice, Bill Brown, who we've had on the show many times over the years and always has been so generous to us and just uh, generous to everybody. He showed Julie Morales the ropes in her early days roaming the dugout and the stands at Minute Maid Park. And a few years ago, we caught up with her after she had the chance to talk to, oh, wow, Kevin Costner and Matthew McConaughey. Remember that? Uh, We asked her about the famous name she's had the chance to interview. Well, those are probably the two biggest, obviously, just their celebrity status. uh, It's, you know, outside of sports. Uh, A lot of sports greats, though, especially here in Houston, the Earl Campbells come by, and a lot of Houston Astros greats. uh, Craig Vigio's here all the time. You know, I mean, it's just those names are huge. Uh, But the Costners and the McConaughey's are fun just because it takes me out of my sports element. I don't get to talk movies uh, very often with these guys. I wish, I guess I could. I guess I could ask Springer what his favorite movie is. But it's not the same as talking to Kevin Costner about Field of Dreams and all this. Uh, Pretty cool. Dennis Quaid was yesterday, too. You know, he was narrating the Jose Altuve documentary. So I got a chance to catch up with Dennis Quaid. What a week. (laughs) And then Kevin Costner and Dennis Quaid. Do you get nervous when you interview those guys? Or who who, are the, who was the guy that you were the most nervous about? Oh, I was a little nervous about Costner um, just because I didn't know how if he even wanted to do the interview. That's the thing. You walk up to these guys just hoping and praying that they have the time for you. Um, but he ended up being really nice, extremely gracious, uh, willing to talk about anything. I think he even said that before the interview. He was like, you can ask me about whatever. Uh, and so that's huge, you know, and then you sit down and you try to have a conversation before the interview starts. So you already kind of feel relaxed and just like you're talking to your friend, you know, and, and he was great. He's got some Texas ties, too. So we were able to get all those out. So I felt like I knew him by the time we actually started the interview. He gave you kind of this field of dreams type interview. He was waxing poetic about baseball. I said that, too. I was like, it's almost like it was scripted. You know, I just kind of got lost in his voice. It's like, what monologue is this from? You know, just the, the way he talked about baseball, you can obviously tell he loves the sport and uh, is a big fan of those characters that he played, which we are, of course, too, the Crash Davis and Billy Chapel. We love those, too. But it was cool to hear how much he loved them uh, when he played them and then even now. Now that a lot of more people are seeing you, they're wondering, who is Julia Morales? They might not know a whole lot about you. You grew up in the Dallas area, right? I did. It's called Crandall, Texas, a population around 2,000, really, really small, but southeast of Dallas. Um, so I'm a Texas girl. I, you know, I grew up watching all sports, the Rangers, the Cowboys, the Mavs, but I have definitely had to switch all that. Now that I'm in Houston, living in Houston, I've become a fan of all these sports. How dangerous is it to walk around to say you're a Cowboys fan yeah. in Houston? Extremely dangerous. Yeah, I can't even believe I said that out loud just now. Uh, but, you know, I mean, AFC, NFC, it's, it's, I've got my teams on each side, and I'm, just, I'm pretty much just quiet on Sundays. If you, if you notice on Twitter, I just shut my mouth, and I'll root, I'll root for both if that's okay with everyone. Were you a baseball person mostly when growing up, or did you have was it all three sports, or did you have a specific sport that you loved more? I watched all three, but I'd have to say I was a big Cowboys fan. I grew up, you know, in the '90s, and the Cowboys were dominant. You know, it was just what they were doing at the time. How could you not be a Cowboys fan? So I grew up with with football, and obviously high school football was a big thing as I went through high school. Um, but we went to Rangers games. We we loved the Rangers. It was just they were struggling all those years. So. We watched the offense more than we watched the pitching. You know, I mean, we would we knew the the Juan Guns and the Pudge. Pudge was my favorite player that I loved to watch. But as I grew older, I started covering sports. I really fell in love with the game early, and that's what brought me here. Did you play anything? 
I played volleyball, basketball, and ran track. I was also a cheerleader. So I'm telling you, that small school Crandall, yeah, we did it all. <laughs> what a joy to talk to Julia Morales, who just so you know is as charming in person as she is on the broadcast. Now let's hear about the old school voices who some of you I'm sure grew up listening to on the radio. Milo Hamilton and Gene Elston, the legends. Gene was the Astros voice for the first 25 years, and then Milo replaced him. And whoa, 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 the Hall of Famer was the sound you heard on the radio for the next 25 years. After their passing a few years ago, we caught up with Jerry Truppiano and Greg Lucas to get their thoughts. Truppiano worked with Gene on the Astros broadcast in the mid-'80s, and Lucas, who's one of our favorite guests, worked the Astros games for Fox Sports Southwest for 18 seasons. You'll hear Truppiano and then Lucas on the passing of the Astros' signature voices. Gene uh, was, was old school in that, uh, and uh, Vin Scully is, is the last to use the old school style where it's just one broadcaster, does not work with a, an analyst or a, or a co-broadcaster. Even though we, we shared uh, a, a microphone, uh, he did his innings, then he'd bring you on to do your innings. But uh, just... just uh, Learned a lot from from Gene. I, I was very fortunate to, to grow up in St. Louis, and and the Hall of Famer Jack Buck was the guy who took me under his wings there. But uh, then then learning game preparation and uh, attention to detail, I think that was a hallmark of of Gene Elston. It was always about the game for for Gene. There was there was no ego. There was no no fluff really. He he just gave you the word picture of the game and uh, did so in a very professional manner. Started out doing baseball in, in the 3I League in, in the Midwest, down to the minors, then was hired by Mutual to do uh, games. I think he also worked for the Cubs for a while, and then he got the uh, job with the Colt 45s, the predecessor to the Astros, then long time with the Astros, and then after he was uh, summarily dismissed by the Astros after 25 years, uh, Latched on at, uh, at CBS for the uh, Game of the Week on radio. So a full career, a full life, uh, lost him at the age of 93. But uh, just a tremendous broadcaster and a great guy. As time passes, and this is, happens for all of us, as time passes, we forget the guys that were way back. And yet those are the ones that usually had the most influence. And I'll use Gene Elston as an example. Gene Elston was not only the first... Uh, number one lead voice of the Houston Major League franchise, but he was the first lead voice of Major League Baseball in an entire state. He covered the entire state. The the Colt 45s and, and early days Astros Network covered every corner of this state. Gene Elston taught baseball to Texas. Oh, we'd had minor league teams, we'd had minor league announcers, but you know nothing like a major league franchise that is being blasted into every home in pretty much every corner of the state. And Gene was a teacher. He was a teacher not only to the listeners, but he was a teacher to the guys he worked with. I want to plug a book that has come out that Dwayne Stats wrote, the longtime, uh, well, now Tampa Bay announcer, but he's worked with the Astros as a youth and moved on to the Cubs and the Yankees and ESPN. He has a, a book out now that you can get through Amazon.com, and I'm sorry I don't have it in my hand because I'd give you the title, but it's by, G, by Dwayne Stats. And the first third of the book is talking about how he worked with Gene Elston and how he got to know Gene Elston and how Gene Elston helped him become a broadcaster. And that was Gene Elston. Gene was a teacher. Gene, if he was in the school of anyone, I would say Gene was closer to the school of Red Barber. No nonsense. Do the game. Be accurate. Don't get carried away with yourself. 
Milo was more of the school of his arch enemy, Harry Carey, in the sense that uh, in his career, once it started in Atlanta, Milo was much more flowery, much more entertaining, much more exciting. So they were different broadcasters altogether, but they were good at what they did. And so Houston really has been very lucky to have really until Robert Ford came in, those were the only two that had been the lead guys on radio in the whole history of the franchise. And that's 50 years. They were very, very lucky to have both of those guys, and it was unfortunate they they both passed close to each other. And, of course, Milo was honored by the club because he'd been working with them most recently, and Gene had been gone for 29 years. But they both were very, very important to this franchise, both honored with the Frick Award at the Hall of Fame, and justly so. That's my friend and the friend of the show, Greg Lucas, who you might remember from his days at HSE, the original Houston Sports Network. Now let's hear from one of my favorite guys out at the ballpark, Bob Ford. He's closing in on three decades as the Astros PA announcer. You'll also recognize his voice because he's been generous enough to lend his voice to us. Yes, that's him introducing the Houston Sports Talk podcast for us every week. Bob is a great story of a local kid who grew up an Astros fan and who's now right there at Minute Maid Park every night with a job most every little kid would love. I spoke to him back in 2016 and started our conversation asking about his beginnings in the business. My first job as a, as a kid was when I was like 13 and I was playing Coney, uh, Pony Colt baseball at the time. The guy down the street uh, who I grew up with, he's a few years older than I am, uh, he was the PA announcer. And that was something that I'd uh, always been enamored with was, uh, you know, speaking. But to take you back even further, I started uh, speaking, I, I guess, in public at church. I went to a Catholic school and we had mass every morning and they needed people to, you know, do the readings. And and I was about uh, third or fourth grade, and I started doing the readings at church. And there was nothing more majestic than talking in St. Patrick's Church, the big cavernous. And, and you'd say something, and then you'd just hear it, you know, the re- reverberate around the entire church. It may sound weird to, to a few, but I always thought that was neat. I eventually got into radio, and then I started doing the... Uh, well, let me take you back even further. I was doing the public address announcing. I had uh, been asked to... Uh, to try out for it at Pony Colt Stadium, and I ended up doing three nights a week, uh, two two games a night there when I was 13, and then playing the other two nights a week uh, when I wasn't doing the PA, and that was the start of uh, where I got to today. So take us from there to your association with the Astros and how that came about. I was on the radio up in Houston, and I'd always wanted to do public address announcing. I thought it would be cool to do a public address announcing for an Astros game. And I had uh, heard that uh, J. Fred Duckett, who was uh, the PA announcer, the uh, the guy who invented the Jose Cruz thing, used to rattle the interior of the dome. But he used to leave for two or three weeks every few years to uh, go down and announce the Summer Olympics wherever they were to help them out with that. And uh, I caught wind of that and put in an application numerous times just to be his backup. Never heard anything back. When I was doing radio, I was doing the morning show at Z107, and we got in tight with the Astros. They used to bring up guys in the offseason, the players, in the offseason once a week, and we'd have them on on the morning show with uh, Bob and Crash. And I got to know the people from the Astros. And when Drayton bought the team, he brought in a guy from College Station, a guy by the name of Derek Grubbs, 
And uh, Derek was magnificent. He brought a whole bunch of things to the table that uh, uh, Major League Baseball had not heard prior to his arrival, uh, like sound effects and different kinds of music and just keeping the game very up and active. Then we had the strike, and uh, Derek was let go. I don't know exactly what became of it, but I was called and invited to audition for the uh, for the PA announcer in the um, first part of 1994. I went in, there was like a dozen guys who went in, and they had a prepared script, and we went into the Dome. As a matter of fact, it was when they were setting up for the rodeo, early February. We read the script that they gave us over the PA system, and they recorded each one of us. And then like a week later, they had some type of executive roundtable session where uh, the executives from the Astros were all sitting around, and they were going to pick and choose the new public address announcer. And the story goes, as I've heard is that uh, Bob McLaren, who was the uh, president of uh, the Astros business operations at the time, gave like a little speech before they all sat down and listened to it and said, we want somebody who sounds like that guy on HSE. That's what we're looking for. And that guy on HSE just happened to be me. I'd been doing home sports entertainment for almost, uh, must have been, because I started there in 1986. So that's, you know, you're talking about eight, eight years there. And as the story goes, when they came to my tape, uh, they started it, and Bob McLaren jumped up and says, that's him. So, and the rest is history. For many fans, the PA announcer's voice, is, it's such a personal connection to their ballpark experience. You mentioned J. Fred Duckett, who was there for 30 years. In a way, he was the voice of the Astrodome for so many. And I know you're also a lifelong Astro fan. So what is it like to step into that position, understanding the relationship the fans had with Duckett at that time? I stepped in after Derek had done it for a year. And they wanted to make a change. And Derek, uh, he'll be the first to tell you he's not the big announcer kind of guy. But Derek brought so much else to the to the table. That's why they brought him in there. But they weren't happy with the way that he sounded over the him. He himself sounded his voice sounded over the PA system, and uh, hence the change with J J Fred. J Fred was still at the Astros. Well, he was really with Major League Baseball as an official scorer. And I'd see him, God God love him, J. J. Fred, he wouldn't speak to me for like the first year or two. And I, I think because he resented the fact that I was doing it and he wasn't. So I took it upon myself one day just to go in and catch him after a game and say, doggone it. And I went up and talked with him and he and I became the best of friends. Seriously, the best of friends, because he when we moved to Minute Maid Park, he would sit right behind me in his capacity as the official scorer. We just had a very close relationship after that. As a matter of fact, uh, the 2004 All-Star Game, he wasn't invited. He wasn't the official scorer, so he wasn't going to be able to go to the game. And I had two tickets. And my dad, I had given one to him. And I got to thinking, it's like, goodness, you know, Jay Fred's not going to be able to be here since he he had done the previous All-Star Games at the Dome. And I, I called him up, and he was just overjoyed. So he and my dad sat next to each other for the 2004 All-Star Game in the Dome uh, over at Minute Maid. And uh, my dad still cherishes that time that he spent with Jay Fred. And, of course, we lost Jay Fred and. Uh, I think it was, what, 2006, 2007, around there. But he was he was a great guy, honestly was. And those were, you know, big, uh, big, big shoes to fill. As you mentioned, you know, growing up, uh, I, I could still vividly remember the first time I ever went into the Dome in 1965. I was, what, eight years old at the time. And 
mom and dad packed all four of us. I've got a brother and two little sisters and packed all four of us into our jalopy station wagon and made the drive up from Galveston. And I can still remember we were on 610 and coming over an overpass the first time I ever saw the dome, just sitting out there in the vast open prairie because there was not much development around there at the time. And I was just, wow. And uh, even even years later, when I was doing the PA at the dome, I would make it a point uh, not every game, but when I had the luxury of time prior to a game to go out in the bowl and just take it all in because the dome was, and I imagine still is just such an impressive place to be in. And I, and I, I remember that feeling when I first walked in in 1965 and tried to carry that with me all through the years as well. Is there a difference, do you think, between the Astrodome and Minute Maid Park as an announcer? Is there a different sound that it had? Do you, do you sense that at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sound at, uh, at the Dome, if you'll remember, we had the, what was it, eight, ten big speaker clusters suspended hanging from the ceiling. And that was just, you know, just by by force. You know, he just cranked everything up and just turned it all on and, you know, as loud as it went. And that's what you heard. Uh, at, at Minute Maid, we have uh, the, what is technically known as a distributed sound system, where there are not the big speakers uh, to where everything blows through, but there are speaker boxes placed all throughout uh, every level of the stadium. And, uh, and it's a lot clearer, a lot cleaner. I'm definitely sure that you can hear everything a lot better than at the dome. What are a couple of moments uh, for you that stand out over the last couple of decades, your favorite Astro memories? You know, the playoffs uh, back at the Dome, let me start there. Uh, the first time that we were in the playoffs, uh, that was fun. Uh, you know, all the excitement and everything. Because I remember back in 86, listening and trying to watch the uh, the playoff games while, while I was at work. And that's, uh, you know, basically everybody's life around 1986. The playoff time revolved around that. At least all the baseball fans did. And I remember the excitement there. And then being able to be a part of it all back when we started uh, getting into the playoffs in 97 and 98, uh, that was a charge. That was fun to be a part of. We'd clinch uh, the wild card. I think it was in 98 and all the ticker tape and everything coming down from the ceiling at the Dome. That was that, that was a very special moment. Back at Minute Maid, the one thing that sticks out to, to me, the 2004 NLCS against the Cardinals when uh, Jeff Kent hit that walk-off three-run shot, that was a big uh, favorite memory of mine. And, of course, 2005, the run to the World Series was fun all the way around, too, the 18-inning game and such. Well, a couple months ago, Biggio got into the Hall of Fame. You witnessed so many of his historic moments and key parts of his career. What were your emotions when you found out that Craig was voted in the Hall of Fame and what Biggio memories really stick out for you? Uh, lots of them with Craig. As, as a matter of fact, I told him uh, we had the uh, reception for him uh, back at Minute Maid uh, the week or so after he was named uh, to the uh, class of uh, 2015. And he and I were talking and I and I told him, because there were stories in the news about him getting choked up. And I told him, I said, I said, Craig, I said, I even got choked up when they announced it, which I did. It was like, wow, finally, you know, and to see someone as good of a guy as Craig is, uh, I mean, he's just all around, just your upstanding, uh, personable, friendly, what you see is what you get kind of guy. Uh, and, of course, the player, uh, you know, the hard-nosed player that he was all throughout his career. Uh, one of the quotes that I remember seeing or uh, reading in a, in a news story was the fact that, that he ran 
at full speed every time down to first base, whether he knew he was going to be out or not. He gave all he had running to first base, and that's the kind of player that Craig was. What about uh, a memory for you? Is the strongest memory the 3,000th hit, maybe? Perhaps. uh, There were so many memories with Craig. 3,000th hit, obviously, that stands far and above all the rest of them. There was so much anticipation leading up to that uh, in the games prior. And you just, you know, the night that it happened, you just kind of knew that it was going to happen. I think he was three back. We just all kind of sensed that, yeah, tonight's going to be the night. And when he did it, it was just, you know, wow, this is this is history unfolding and, you know, right in front of you here, you know, which was awesome. Let me ask you a couple of nuts and bolts questions about being a public address announcer. Is there a name or two over the years that gave you some trouble, either an Astro or even a visiting player? My very first game, which uh, when you're talking about nuts and bolts, I really didn't know. Uh, and nobody took the time to, you know, to, to tell me what to do. But I walked in for my first game and uh, it was a season opener back in 1994. I walked in and just started announcing the name, started announcing the game. And one of the things that they didn't tell me was that you really should go down and talk to the PR person from the visiting team to get the pronunciation of, of all the names. I didn't do that because I didn't know. And we get to about the seventh or eighth inning and there's a substitution for Montreal uh, and I could say his name perfectly now because I said it through the years, but the first time I saw it on in, in print right in front of me, Mark Grudzelanik. And it's like, holy moly. And I, and Derek, uh, was, uh, Derek Grubbs was still in the booth with me. He was running all the sound effects. And uh, Grudzelanik was a rookie at that time. So this was like his first appearance in a major league game ever. And uh, I remember looking over to Derek and it's like, how do you say this guy's name? And I'll be honest with you, I mumbled something, but it was nowhere close. And uh, that's the first thing that taught, taught me a lesson in my very first game. Go down and talk to the PR guy from the other team. Get their names right. What's the strangest uh, or maybe even funniest moment for you behind the mic? Is there anything that really sticks out as kind of the quintessential Bob Ford uh, public address announcing story? The most recent one was last year where I'm situated. I've got a, a box in front of me that's an on-off box for the microphone switch and you punch it and you punch the button and the mic stays on you talk and then you punch the button again to turn it off and last year we had the uh, exhibition games against the uh, mexico city team saturday late saturday afternoon game we picked up alex presley that very same morning and he was in in uniform on the bench. They hadn't had time to add him to the rosters. I started, which I shouldn't have done, but, you know, being too comfortable all these years, it was like, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Now pinch running for so-and-so at second base is number eight. And I kept looking on the roster thinking I was going to find number eight, and I couldn't see him. And I thought I, I thought I turned the mic off, and I leaned over to Gene Dias, who's the uh, PR director there, and I said, who the hell is number eight? And there it went over the Minute Maid Park PA system. <laughs> so that's not one I'm fond of, but that's just the most recent of gaffes that I have had. So, and there have been, been been a few, but it's you know basically it's just like live radio. And I learned years ago that once you say it and it's live, it's out there, and there's no taking it back. My uh, defense for doing that is just keep on going like nothing happened. That's Astros PA announcer Bob Ford, who you're about to hear from again in just a few seconds as we close this one out. Well, we hope you enjoyed another walk down memory lane for Throwback Thursday, and we hope if you haven't already that you'll introduce your friends and family to our show. 
Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.